Welcome to the See You the Conservatives podcast. Today we're talking about dyes. I'm Jenny Mathiasen, an object conservative based in Carmarthenshire. And I'm Chloe Rumsey, an object conservative based in Greater Manchester. Welcome to the show, everyone. Hello, hello. Today we're talking about dyes and we've got a special guest host with us. Would you like to introduce yourself to our listeners? Hello. I'm Alison Lister. I'm a textile conservator. I run my own business, Textile Conservation Limited, based in Bristol. I was sort of thinking that we might uh, unpick sort of what our experiences are around using dyes in conservation. It's it's a big topic. You guys work a lot more with textiles than I do. So maybe maybe I'll start by being the baby of the group here. <laughs> <Aww>. <laughs> uh, in that, you know, I'm a general objects conservator. I work more with textiles than I think I thought I would because there's a lot of costumes and like you know, textiles featuring a lot of things. When I say I've uh, my experiences with dyes, they're quite limited, like... Up until a couple of years ago, pretty much the only thing I'd done in terms of dyeing anything was getting some off-the-shelf dye, like the stuff you mm. use for your clothes. Because like I've dyed my own clothes before, that's fine. But that's a very different game than using something in conservation. But I got some off-the-shelf dye to like dye cotton tape to like look brown so that it would blend in with something. But that wasn't in use with an object. It was part of like set dressing mm. uh, and it was just because they needed a sort of you know a, a material that I had on hand and it was cotton tape and there you go and I just made it look brown uh, <laughs> so like I had like zero experience with this up until last year when I had this this little project that I was like oh I'm gonna need to dye something oh god what have I done um, <laughs> oh no I don't have uh, that much experience with this sort of thing but I know that you guys do so do tell me about that so Jenny, I remember <laughs> you messaged me quite a lot during that project um, and the, es- the essence of the messages were, what the f*** is going on? <laughs> I think my actual feelings towards trying to read anything about sort of dyes used in conservation was, is this actual witchcraft? What is this? Um, and that's sort of still how I feel. <laughs> yeah, so I think that I... Um, so I'm obviously, for people that don't know, Objects Conservator started in textiles and then from my work in a textiles conservation studio, that's when I learned to use dyes and I'd seen it done and thought, ooh, ah, okay. And then I learned how to do it. And I really felt for you when I got your messages because I, th- I was thinking about myself before I learned or, and whilst I was learning and I thought, <laughs> there really is this like barrier (laughs) the barrier of how to do it you know how to even approach it so my use of dyes is I suppose the standard textiles conservation use of dyes it fill fabrics support fabrics I've dyed nylon net and silk I've never dyed polyester Um, my colleague has and it looked like witchcraft even though it was a really similar process Um, (laughs) but she was using a different type of dye and there were you know the health and safety warnings on it were you know much more than Lanaset which is what I use for silk and it just seemed like a kind of big deal so that's my gap in knowledge of the different types of dyes. I mean, I've been using dyes for three years. That's it. But I now approach dyes with quite a... I'm quite excited to do it now because I love oh, colour matching. I know. But I would say I feel very lucky to be in a studio that has been dyeing fabrics for 30 years. So mm. they've got 
folders and folders of dye recipes and little fabric swatches and this is how we got to this color wow and so I think if I didn't have that I'd be at sea but I'm interested to see what Alison thinks of of uh, her <laughs> place in dye use and um, everything we've said uh, well, Jenny, if you're the baby and Chloe, you're the uh, teenager, <laughs> I think that must make me the sort of pensioner. <laughs> and grandmother. So I'll tell you what my experience of dying is. I trained as a textile conservator at the Textile Conservation Centre, which was at Hampton Court in those days, in the late 1980s. So I probably did the dye course, which was an element of that program in 1989. I was trying to work out when that might have been. And what we did then, it was a week-long course where we were introduced to the whole process of dyeing, mm. um, the the theory behind the colouring of fabrics, the uh, the different categories of dyes and, and uh, where they came from and how they were applied to the fabrics. And then actually did a series of practical sessions where we created little triangles to show how if you combine two or three colours in different ways, you get different shades. And I still have my triangle <laughs> and a, a set of sheets to show how you change the depth of shade uh, by varying the calculation. And I still have those as well. We also shared between our little group the samples that other people had done. So actually, by the end of the dye course, we all came away with our own little starter kit of dyes and also a copy of the TCC dye manual, which is, is still around and is still given out to textile conservation students in a, in a slightly modified form since the, the course went to the University of Glasgow. And I have several updated versions that have come from students and interns and employees that I've had at the studio over the years. So I've actually got a, a bit of a library of dye manuals. And I noticed looking at the very earliest one that actually the original dye manual was first created from some research done in 1980 by someone called Colleen Wilson. And then over the years, it was updated by both the sort of lecturers and the conservation practitioners and the conservation scientists at the TCC over the years, sort of gradually adding more information, refining the instructions. And I mean, now I think it's a, it's a 40-page document or something like that. Oh. And I, I suspect most textile conservators in the UK and possibly even worldwide still have the manual as the kind of core of the data they, they use in, in dyeing. And I certainly use my version of the manual uh, when I when I do dyeing. So first thing to say is that after even after kind of 30 years of dyeing fabrics, I still need to get the manual out. <laughs> oh, that's helpful. <laughs> and I, I don't feel any shame in doing that. So I'm happy to kind of bring that out in front of the students saying, I always need to check the dye manual. But I do think just over the years, I've, I am sort of familiar with the process, more confident in the process, perhaps more willing to critique when things have gone wrong without thinking I've just sort of failed. You know, I'm hopeless at dying, but to actually try to investigate what might have gone wrong and, and to understand how I can, how I can do it better. I think it's just an ongoing process of developing and learning and, and gaining confidence and trying things. That's wonderful to hear that you're still using that manual. That's somehow so helpful. <laughs> it really is. And I think it, it, it makes me think of the fact that this is so specialism led. We're, we're, we're trained objects conservators, not really had an opportunity to try dyes, but every textile conservator trainee has done the training at least some of the training um, and I suppose is that because it's so kind of niche and time consuming and 
materials consuming that in order to learn it you've got to learn it a lot rather than learn it a bit does that make sense you've got to go kind of deep dive into it in order to understand and if you do it partially you'll just come away going no I got no I've got nothing (laughs) that is definitely how I felt I do think it's because you know good color matching Mm. is really key to the success mm. of the treatments that we apply because yeah. so so much of our support treatments, as we call, are about applying a new fabric to an original fabric in a way that is not obtrusive or disruptive or disfiguring or distracting in any way. So color matching is such a key element, I think, of the success of our work. And mm. personally, I see dyeing as this two-part process. The first bit is the color matching, which is about choosing the right shade for the object, bearing Mm -hmm. in mind the qualities of the material that you're attaching and the way that you are attaching that material, whether it's going over the top or going behind, whether you're going to see a large bit of this new backing or just a small part. And I think to me, that artistry element, and then there's the actual technical process as we've described in, in the manual, which is it's following calculations. And that's all about precision and accuracy. And actually, the, the, art, the, the color matching is the really important skill and judgment that I feel a textile conservator needs to develop. And there isn't a manual for that. But that is what you really learn over years of practice. And if you get it right, then you know that the quality of your your conservation work, your your support treatment will be will be the best it can be. My parents are artists. My mum taught me to paint. Colour mixing in paint, I absolutely love. And I've got quite, I feel I have quite a good eye for colour matching. So when I was learning, I was thinking, yeah, I'm going to use this because this is like this. I'm going to try these ones because this is sort of similar and blah, 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 blah. Looking at the samples, loving every minute of colour matching. And then I'd get to the calculations as a dyslexic person who can hardly count at the best of times (laughs) and it brought me to tears because I was just I just as soon as you stick a number on it didn't understand it took me weeks and then I had to relearn it the next time I did it and then relearn it again the next time I did it because it's just the numbers thing if it was sticking dyes in some water and going yes that's the right color visually I could do it (laughs) but then there's no repeatability there at all. People used to do it that way. They used to do it by, uh, you know, a drop here and a dash there. Yeah. And yeah. there's the right colour. And maybe some conservators still do. I think the reason it we now have a manual and we have a series of formula is that we want to be able to re- reproduce these colours, yeah. which is all about efficiency, isn't it? To be able to find a colour and, and make it yourself, you know, when you need it. And that's where all the formula come in. But but what I would say is that I think it doesn't matter. Obviously, it must be painful for you to have to <laughs> go through that process every time. But it doesn't, it doesn't matter that bit of the process you have to write down step by step in order just to remember the formula and the process. Because oh, yeah. to me, that is not... That is a technical thing. And you can just follow instructions. What really, really matters is your eye for colour and your ability to to match to colours. And I think uh, we say colour matching, but one of the difficulties we have with historic textiles is that they are no longer a single colour. You know, even just (laughs) one one red is never just 
a single red now because they've become aged, they've faded, they've got spots and stains all over them. So what are we actually matching to, first of all? Which <laughs> bit, you know, where? So I think it's fine to have the whatever level of instruction you need to work out how much dye powder to mix with how much water. And then what really you need to, to be developing as a professional conservator is that colour matching skill. I love that we're talking about this because much like Chloe, I'm so accustomed to doing this with like paints or something similar and even then what i do is crude compared to you know what paintings conservators do for goodness sake you know, <laughs> oh yeah like, oh yeah <laughs> but I, I do a decent job and i love playing with colors <laughs> i foolishly thought how different can it be when it dies turns out <laughs> uh, that was a challenge level i was not prepared for because as you say like it's we're not sort of color matching something that's that, that's like a straightforward color no so so to describe the problem i was having was that i sort of it was a piece of costume that I was challenged with. The outside was silk. That was a pattern to begin with. Quite a straightforward pattern in some ways of leaves and vines in a kind of cream colour on what was now a greeny, browny, yellowy, sort of strange, <laughs> dirty backdrop. Um, but it, it was a dirty looking type of colour. Now, I know how to do that with paints. But with dyes, and oh, it just broke my head. <laughs> Thoroughly, it just broke me. Uh, but some of the problems here was that I didn't really have any of the sort of equipment. I didn't have mm. any literature on hand at all that was useful. So I was sort of reliant on internet searches for that so this sort of thing and, and uh, Chloe's encouraging words. Um, <laughs> I didn't really have a lot of experience and I didn't have a lot of budget to like go and suddenly try out dye systems. And uh, in in the end, I didn't I didn't dye anything at all because I just couldn't get the color right. On that note, Jenny, I've I've just used paints to color small patches of things, um, and that's got a whole bucket of problems as well. Um, if you're using washes, but um, that that was the compromise that I essentially settled mm. on was to use paints instead. So, have you used paints and things uh, to solve that a similar kind of problem, Alison, or is that something that because you now are so used to using dyes, it's much easier to just use dyes. I do use different colorants because I, even after all of these years of dyeing, there are still instances on a regular basis where I just mm. cannot get the right color. I just cannot get the right color. Or going through that entire process of dyeing for a tiny piece of fabric is not is not an efficient use of my time. And actually... Mm. If that if that is the case, then it may be a lot quicker and simpler and more efficient to and, you know, in terms of the success of the color to use paints. Actually, what I use are silkscreen pigments Ooh. and they are designed for use with fabrics. And mm. you get a binder, an acrylic binder and a little set of liquid pigments, extremely strong. So you mix like paint to get the shade that you want, you mix in the binder and then you can dilute it if you want a more sort of lightweight, loose kind of surface wash effect on your fabric. Uh, and you paint it on, you leave it to dry. To fix it, it needs to be hot ironed. And then I tend to ah. hot wash afterwards and hot iron again, just to be absolutely sure. It gives you sort of flexibility in terms of the matching the colours. So that is something I would use an alternative to dyeing. I've also been looking at using pencils 
as a coloring material and in a slightly different way. And I looked at a whole range of uh, of pencils for infilling. um, And I think they too have potential. And and certainly they, if you're only doing a very small area, they, they, they can be very much easier and quicker to use. On the the note of describing how things are done for people, I, I just want to go really back to basics and describe the process of dyeing that we're talking about because I feel that maybe if someone hasn't even if if conservators haven't even seen you know the process of dyeing then they know there's a hot plate and they know that there's some powder but if it was if there anyone not anything like me that was just that's all I had (laughs) when I started so (laughs) it's essentially you get dyes of different concentrations obviously in the same way as adhesives with different amounts of powder and the correct amount of water um then you mix ratios of those for colors just like you do with paints into a dye solution to get your right color the additives is something that blew my mind of dye fastness and things like that dye fastness is is an important one and certainly uh, light fastness is is one of the things that the mm-hmm. additives really make the difference of wet fastness is not so much of an issue i think mostly because we're not normally going to be washing a supported textile afterwards but the additives ideally not with, <laughs> the additives also help with leveling and and the sort of take up of the dye so that you get an even color over your whole fabric and and in fact leveling it is a very difficult thing to achieve because with the equipment that we tend to have because it's it's fairly low tech (laughs) so yeah those additives are essentially different chemicals at different concentrations that you add into your solution you mix everything in water with your and, and a correct amount of water in with your piece of fabric that you're dyeing and then you heat it up to different levels for different lengths of time a little bit like potion making in harry potter and that is it so if you're you're boiling something on a stove essentially for different lengths of time and at different temperatures boiling is probably the wrong word because these these sort of specific temperatures are like heat up to 80 degrees for 30 minutes that sort of thing those temperature sort of shifts are to do with encouraging the dye encouraging the dye to go into the fabric when you want it to go in in an even way if it all sort of rushed Mm. in if you went straight to the high temperature it would all sort of rush onto the fabric in a blotchy way so that so controlling the dye the temperature process is all about again about leveling getting even dyeing there are occasional patchinesses in some of the things that I'm dying, and I think that's possibly, you know, if the hot plate takes ages to heat up, or you know, the the pot that you've got on it it on. Oh, that's another thing we can talk about the actual physical equipment. If the pot you're using, if you're not using, you know, ban marie is that the right term? Um, then you, if that's not perfectly flush to the hot plate, it might heat up slower. I, there are, I mean, there are so many variables involved in dyeing which can mean you don't get the right color or you don't get an even color you don't get a dark enough color and unfortunately I think because we're not using highly sophisticated equipment which is what these dyes are developed for use with that inevitably we are not going to get those really high quality high standard levels of dyeing and most of the time that's okay you know it, 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 it it's not going to show it's not going to undermine your conservation work in any way I think we should be striving for as high a quality as we can achieve but we have to be realistic given mm-hmm. the resources that we have available and the fact that we are not dyeing technicians and the, the second thing I would say is that there are 
things that you can do if if you have a problem with uneven dyeing, then maybe you need to look at something in the preparation of the fabric beforehand. Perhaps it's it's has some finish on it that needs mm-hmm. to be removed before dyeing, or yes, maybe your equipment doesn't control the temperature as as evenly as it should. Perhaps you're not you haven't got enough liquid in the whole dye pot for the fabric to move around and therefore to come mm-hmm. into contact with all the dye molecules. So, you know, there may be some very simple things that can be done, but also it could just be we we just don't have the resources to, to, to create perfect dyeing and perhaps 90% of the time that doesn't matter. I really love it when things in conservation come down to we can try our best, but at the end of the day, it's going to be fine. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like that's that's a really nice kind of down to earth conclusion that we can come to. And I think my concern when I'm dying is the fact, is this going to be light fast? Is this going to be wash fast? I've never done a bulk dye that has come out the wrong colour. And admittedly, I've only done it a few times, really. <laughs> I feel like I've jinxed myself now. Oh, no. <laughs> Impressive. Really impressive if you've never done a bulk dye that's come out the wrong colour because it's the bulk dye is when everything can go. Yeah, I was going to say. You have a beautiful sample and it's all even and then you do the bulk dye and it's a different colour and it's all blotchy. So you, you're getting it right in the right place. <laughs> yeah, that's the, it, there's always the doubt though, isn't there, of, oh God, what have I done? And then it's always darker before it dries properly and so you leave it for the weekend and you're upset all weekend and then you come back and it's actually fine. <laughs> So I spoke to Laura Peters the other day about the technical use of dyes and the the sort of nitty gritty and particularly her work looking at different types of dyes and getting comfortable with dyes with students at Cologne University. Hello, I'm speaking to Laura Peters today to get a bit scientific with the conservation use of dyes. Would you like to introduce yourself, please, and your work? Yeah. Hi, Chloe. Thank you for uh, having me. Hello. And <laughs> yeah, momentarily, I work as a lecturer at the Institute for Conservation Sciences at the University of Applied Sciences Cologne, uh, where I'm working in the textiles conservation department. Uh, we have five different disciplines and workshops here. There are textile conservation, paintings and sculptures, wood and modern materials, stone and wall paintings, and the paper conservation department. And uh, that gives a great exchange of knowledge and experience um, where we can interchange and learn from each other. And this is really great. I studied there myself and finished with my master's degree. Then for some years I worked at the Germanisches Nationalmuseum in Nuremberg, uh, afterwards as a freelance conservator and at the Ethnological Museum in Cologne. And now I'm back at the university, but now on the other side. And I'm mainly teaching the basics of practical textile conservation, including the use of dyes. So your interest in dyes started while you were working as a textile conservator, didn't it? Can you tell us what made you want to study them in more scientific detail? In textile conservation, uh, the process of dyeing is used basically for the method of a patched or local or entire support for a damaged fabric. Um, Support means a new fabric that matches not only in the structure of the weave and the material of the original, but also in its color, like a retouching. And um, this makes it nearly impossible to just buy the already perfect fabric. And moreover, sometimes we need 
five slightly different shades for just one object. So a new undyed and untreated fabric has to be dyed in the matching color and through sewing work or the use of adhesives is connected to the original fabric. Unfortunately, the process of dyeing is a very time-consuming way to retouch, but therefore also very stable. Um, because the requirements for proper dyeing for the use in textile conservation are especially a high wet or wash and light fastness. And uh, depending on your laboratory equipment, uh, only one set of a dyeing process normally takes up to two to three hours in which you can handle up to eight different samples of different coloration. And if you're lucky, one of these samples fits the original so you can carry out the final dyeing process. And as always, the more experience that you have, the better. Because the process takes quite a long time, you want to achieve the highest reproducibility as possible. That's why almost all textile conservators use synthetic dyes and not natural ones. And depending on the substrate like protein or cellulose fibers, you have different specifications like reactive metal complex and acid dyes. And since I'm working as a lecturer, it's more important than ever that I reconsider the content and techniques I teach. And there is always the potential of tunnel vision if you teach it for years and years to come. So this also came up in 2019 during a discussion at the Conservation in Color Symposium of the Icon Textile Group in Manchester, where somebody asked why most textile conservators, at least in the UK, Germany, Switzerland, Austria, and so on, use the same dyeing systems from only one producer. And the answer is because you use the ones you be taught where you have studied. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and uh, uh, on one hand, it's very reassuring because we have a lot of long-time experience. But on the other hand, we might limit ourselves. Here. So after years of teaching only these very few specific dyeing systems, we wanted to rethink the whole subject. So how have you studied these dyes and what have you found out? Um, at first, I took a closer look at the different components of the whole process of dyeing and made myself more comfortable uh, with the whole chemistry behind them. Then I took a look at the different application methods of dyeing and this is the most interesting part because these processes are often very sensitive to errors. Depending on the specification of the dye, the application methods are the exhaust dyeing or direct application with so-called PET steam or PET dry thermofix method. Usually performed is the exhaust dyeing method because it achieves the most evenly dye. The key challenge to achieve a properly dyed fabric is to perform the dyeing process as accurate as possible. And the chief difficulty here lies in the equipment uh, used in the industry is not easily transferable in a commonly provided conservation workshop. And uh, the dyes are made for the industry, so it's... Um, yeah, it's tricky. Uh, and only very few big museums can afford the automats from the industry like a bigger dyer because, of course, they are very expensive. And the amount of the fabric we dye is, uh, of course, uh, much less than the industry. So with an uh, ordinary laboratory equipment, it's not easy to match the correct guidelines like reaching the recommended dye solution ratio and bath ratio, observe 
observe and keep the time, hold and keep the correct temperature, use the right additives, execute the correct washing process and so on. And any deviation leads to uh, lower results concerning the wet and light fastness and the reproducibility. To adapt the standards of the industry for our workplace, we contacted the producer um, who supported us and helped us a lot. So we were able to make at least some adjustments. Um, and then we started to run tests with some other dyeing systems with a simpler and there was faster process, which worked quite fine in the first one. Then we did some more tests with the classical or known dyeing systems with intentional irregularities during the exhaust dyeing to see the impact, which wasn't as, as expected. Yeah, but the final and most interesting tests are still pending because we haven't yet tested the exact level of the reached fastness of the results. Um, yeah, and that uh, might be the most important thing. Uh, and yeah, we could and should do a lot more tests. There are a lot of unanswered questions uh, of research yet. And I think we should think more out of the box and cooperate more with actual dyers. Watch this space as well then. Oh, that's exciting. <laughs> but it will, it will take uh, some time. <laughs> well, we'll all be looking forward to that, I'm sure. <laughs> so has your study changed the way that you use and select dyes in your work then? Um, I'm more open-minded or try to be, and uh, I'm always on the lookout for alternatives. I think I'm less frightened uh, to use dyes in general, and I try to get to the bottom of the active principles, and um, I use them with more appreciation for another craft, definitely. After mm. talking mm. to uh, the producer of these dyeing systems we use, it's really the process is fascinating, <laughs> and the craft is fascinating. <laughs> Would you be able to name some of the dyes that you've worked with most successfully for the listeners? Um, yes, uh, right now we decided to uh, teach the dyeing systems from the Huntsman Corporation. Um, it's uh, Lana Set for protein fibers mm -hmm. and Avitera for cellulose fibers. Mm -hmm. And finally, what would you say to conservators who are nervous about starting to use dyes or to start using dyes in different ways? Um, as I'm just starting to use more or <laughs> different dyes myself, I can also address myself here. But I think it's the same with any other topic of restoration or conservation that's new to us. And I mean, that's also one of the best parts of our job, that we are never fully trained. So we always have to adapt to new methods from time to time. And so, yeah, just take it as a very colorful new challenge. <laughs> and if somebody's out there who has found an easy way to perform a good die, please, 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 please contact me. <laughs> <laughs> Lovely answer. And I love that phrase, never fully trained. We are never fully trained. That's a really nice way of putting it. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Laura, for sharing your work with us. That was really interesting. And I'm sure if anyone has any further questions for you, um, you can contact uh, the C word and we can get in touch with, with Laura for you. Or you can contact Laura directly if, if that's all right. Is that all right? Yes, please. Of course. <laughs> Oh, that's a really lovely interview. I'd just like to say that I really appreciate that she also talks about how time-consuming dyes are. I think it's one of those processes, though, that it's it's difficult for people outside of 
conservation to to know where the time goes. So when I list dying on uh, almost on my proposals, my quotes that I give out to clients, you know, they they're thinking of what they do at home, which is they tip the powder into the yeah. washing machine, <laughs> yeah, put in a couple of kilos of salt and press start and come back and it's died and and don't quite understand where is this three hours going? What's, yeah. what you, what's that being used for? Yeah, definitely. And I think that's that's obviously we were talking about um the the sort of the fear of using dyes and the fear of experimenting with different dyes for me because my understanding of the use of Lanaset is so new if someone presented me with a new dye system and the instructions I'd go okay well I you know I have the basics of Lanaset and I will probably understand this just as much um so I'll have a go that's one of the reasons I think why many of us stick with the dyes that we were first introduced to when we learned dyeing. And certainly in my studio, I use Lanaset for silk and wool and nylon, and I use solophenol for cotton and linen. And also, I think we have all the processes, we have the equipment, and we have all the free samples that we got years ago that that, that we need. And there's, there's not so much incentive to change. On the other hand, I do think it is very important that we are sort of constantly reviewing our methods and and choices of materials and, and constantly seeking better alternatives that give us better quality of, of results. So yeah, I really applaud the work that Laura's been doing in into Avatera. And I, I it's certainly very interested in in exploring that die um, if and when I get the chance to do so. Yeah, I really want to have a go. I think it is interesting because we uh, conservators are often creatures of habit, but and sometimes mm-hmm. it's not just that we're familiar with something. Sometimes it's that you know we've it's something we've got. It's something that it will be yeah. expensive to change your experiment with, and sometimes those are you know real limiting factors that might mean that only like bigger institutions or, or, or universities uh, get to sort of have a go at these other systems. Uh, so it's it's interesting that there may be more barriers here than than just sort of knowledge and comfort. Yeah, definitely. And I'm this <laughs> one of the reasons why I'm really keen to hear more about Laura's work when she's done the other tests is, yes, p- please tell me all the things about using that dye and I will just kind of nod and follow your instructions. If it comes, you know, when when it comes that we, you know, either need to buy new dyes or and fancy a change or fancy an, an experiment or the situation comes at us that we need to use something different for whatever reason. Just going back to the point you were making about changing systems, in some ways, actually, it would not be that difficult for me to change the system I use for dyeing, because essentially I have a very simple kit in the studio for, for, for the dyeing. So I have a balance, obviously, for measuring the powders, and I have measuring equipment such as pipettes and, and, and cylinders and glassware. And then I have a hot plate, which I bought from Ikea, and I use as my bain-marie an old paella pan because it's sort of a wide flat dish with handles and I put little metal pots in that (laughs) it works the treats because it's sort of nice and stable it's sort of wide flat pan really good and for the bulk dyeing I use a burko which is what people make tea in you know at WI meetings and that kind of thing and we've had one we've had that one for years and it all it all works 
but none of it is particularly expensive or difficult to get hold of. So I think if I did have to change, it wouldn't be a massive outlay. It, it's probably just effort that I need to put in. <laughs> Do you guys have any thoughts about like natural versus synthetic dyes? Like, have either one of you played with like natural dyes? Because I'm going to guess that both of your preferred systems are, are synthetic uh, dyes, right? I, I've never done natural dyeing my partner tom he used to do natural dyeing with his mum and from what he says there's a lot of urine involved and i'm just not really up for it <laughs> i think that's probably only one method and one color but i'm just like oh you know what <laughs> urine is not really a conservation grade material is it no I haven't used natural dyes either. So my background is actually in fine art. I trained in painting. So uh, the sort of colour mixing method that Chloe was describing was yeah. is very much how, how I how I view dyeing. Yeah. But I know that people have been looking into using natural dyes. In fact, at that colour conference that we talked about earlier, uh, there was a paper specifically about natural dyes. And so I don't think it should be forever ruled out. Uh, what I was told when I learned about dyeing was that it's extremely difficult to reproduce the same color so mm -hmm. you know over and over yeah. which is what we need which is one of the criteria for choosing the dyes that we have now yeah but from what I remember of that talk there are ways of doing that but my lasting memory of, of the conclusions was that a lot more time is needed to do natural dyeing than than you need for synthetic dyeing okay and that may well be you know the the impediment as as far as mm. i'm concerned but i but it's it's definitely come back as a method that could be applied in conservation yeah, anyway i just thought i'd pick your brains about it because i was curious i'd read a couple of articles about like natural dyes and stuff but more as a i guess the pitch sort of was that it should be like it should be a contender not that it's the preferred way or anything but, uh, i was just curious is it more sustainable are there some good solid reasons why this is this is something we should really consider? I mean, the article I was reading was sort of about colour matching to archaeological textiles, in which case uh, it was sort of easier to get the right yes. sort of muddiness. Sympathetic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So it, it was sort of quite quite specific uh, in that sense. No experience, but, but the paper that was given at the colour conference, I think, made a very convincing case for us looking again at natural dyes and I think certainly it, it, it appeared that you could get the color that you were aiming for I don't know how well you someone else could then reproduce that color but mm. certainly from what was said I thought that a convincing case was being made for for us looking again at natural dyes if someone said to me this is going to be much more kind of ethical and sympathetic I'd go all right yeah I'll spend the time on it because I'm really interested in that side of things but if it was do you want to use this or do you want to use the thing that you've used before and you know that works and you can rely on it? <laughs> I'd probably be a bit of a wimp. Quite a few of our clients, particularly the private clients, ask us if we dye with natural dyes. Oh. Um, so it, it it's interesting that it's it's perceived by some clients, or some, whether they're in the museum or outside of the museum, that we might try to re reproduce the colours using the original dyes that were used on the actual object. So yes, that's quite a common question for us. The other the other thing that I think the natural dye question, other issue it raises, is about what effects they have on the environment. So mm. relates to how we dispose of these materials after we've used them. And I was always taught about, you know, tipping it down the sink and flushing with lots of water. Mm -hmm. mm. And that's about all the instruction that I got in terms of disposal. Yeah, that's true for a lot of chemicals. I mean, <laughs> it really is. <laughs> 
perhaps there ought to be more investigation of that, and that may well be the thing that concerns us, the disposal of, of the dyes after dying. A shelf life is another question, actually, and I remember at the colour conference uh, quite a, a little debate going in the group mm. that I was on when we had the discussion session about how long do you keep them? Do you keep them in the fridge? Do they go off? What goes off? Mm. And I did go back and actually have a look at the technical information that comes along when you when you buy the dyes. And there are discussions about the shelf life of the dry powder and then about the shelf life of the, of the made-up solution. And when I was a student, I, I learned that I had to throw all my dyes away. But I think that was more the fact that there was only a small fridge. And <laughs> so there may be a sort of rule that actually was never a rule, um, was just uh, housekeeping. Uh, and those things, I think we should we, we should be checking and revising and just renewing our our knowledge of. It was interesting how many people in those discussions, myself included, were going, well, I don't really know. <laughs> Oh, hey, well, we're always wanting students to do, you know, <laughs> we're always coming up with random questions that we think, student project, do it. Well, I, I can throw another couple in and that's over-dyeing. Ooh, yes. Because sometimes I have, I can buy a commercial fabric and have tested it that, it that it's fast and it's suitable to use, but it's not quite the right shade. And occasionally we over-dye, particularly if we want to get dark shades, because it's very difficult to get a dark shade using the um, processes that uh, te we tend to use with our dyes. I'd like to know a little, you know, a little bit more to reassure myself that actually it does it does achieve the the correct result. But, you know, mm. how light fast are they, for example? Am I accelerating the degradation of the fiber? Am I partially stripping out the dye as I'm trying to add a new dye at the same time? What, yeah. what exactly is happening? So that, that would be an area that mm. I would encourage some student to look at. <laughs> Yeah, go for it, students. <laughs> Answer all our <laughs> questions, please. <laughs> so how about, are there any like dye hacks that you can share with, I mean, everyone, obviously everyone who listens, but, you know, especially those amongst us who, who might not have as much knowledge as you guys do about it? I just follow the instructions, so I definitely don't have, have any hacks. I just have <laughs> like, I will follow the rules. Yes, I will. Yes, thank you. And uh, hopefully not make too many mistakes. <laughs> Well, well, I ha I have a few I have a few hacks. Yes, and please. So, first of all, I think when it when it comes to color matching with certain treatments such as overlays, where you uh, are overlaying a semi-transparent material over the object uh, in order to give surface protection, sometimes an exact match to the color of the fabric that you are overlaying is not the best color for the overlay. And I always encourage people to sort of expand their search for a suitable color beyond the exact match to the object, because sometimes it's something that's a little greener, a little grayer, a little mm. yellower, that actually makes the overlay less visible and changes the color of the original object to the smallest amount, which are the two issues that you have with colored overlays. You know, think think a bit a bit more broadly in terms of color, particularly with overlays, but it also happens with putting a backing on as well. The second thing is about backings. If you just lay a large piece of fabric, such as your dyed sample, alongside your object, you will get a false impression about how well it matches within small holes. If you're trying to infill small holes, putting a great big piece of 
dyed sample alongside will will not show how it looks in the little hole. So try to put it underneath and make your final decision based on how the fabric looks coming through the small holes. It doesn't work with a large hole, obviously. You might as well have the large piece next to the large hole. But for smaller holes or areas where there's maybe a warp, warps or wefts missing and it's not completely a hole, you'll get a much more accurate assessment of the um, how well your colour matches if you put it behind the object and make your decision there. Mm. And then in terms of the technical side of things, certainly consider preparation, the sort of um, scouring of the fabric or hot washing or rinsing or ironing, all the various hints and tips about preparation that there are actually in the manual, because that may be the thing that is creating the problem of the dye taking up fully and taking up evenly. And also look at the sort of after processes. There are some after treatments that you can give that can improve the the depth of the shade, the intensity of the colour and the fastness as well. So there could be things you do before and after that main dye process that actually really make the difference to the quality of your dye. One quite simple thing, when we have a lot of dye recipes, the easiest thing to do is to find a recipe and just follow it routinely. But if you have to modify it a little bit because it's not quite right, don't tweak what is already a tweak or maybe a tweak of a tweak of a tweak from an original (laughs) recipe that has been tweaked many times. And if you tweak it again, you lose track of exactly what is making the difference. It's far better to start with the pure colour as represented in the little booklet that you get from the suppliers that have the little samples of the pure colour. And then if that's not the right colour, then you choose the other colours that you're going to add in to adapt that original colour. Sometimes it's just for, it's just so much better to go back to kind of first principles than be, yes, tweaking what is already a multiply, a repeatedly tweaked recipe because you can't really understand what's made the difference. Yeah, that's a really good point. Actually, the last bit of dyeing that I did was frustrating because I wasn't very happy uh, or ended up not being particularly happy with the fabric that I used for my fill. And it ended up that both the fill fabric and the object looked very different in colour, depending on the angle that you looked at it for. So I I had to do, I can't remember how many, but there's about eight different reds, I think. And I had to just lay them all out and walk around in circles around my object thinking, okay, which one is the least wrong in all the, <laughs> all the different situations? <laughs> and then looking at them, they're identical reds. Just to do with the, the lighting or the angle. I mean, yeah. certainly because we are mainly working on horizontal surfaces but the objects certainly banners and they are hanging up so the orientation between the viewer and the object is going to be different and we often climb up ladders to down over the object (laughs) to color to color match particularly with overlays because if you do come at them from an oblique angle first of it they look rather hazy and the color just doesn't look right but if you climb up you know and look down from above that's really should be the kind of final check or you hang the object up at the end or you know pin it up yeah and look at it that way so there are just so many variables that come into play when it comes to color matching surprising we get it right at all really (laughs) (laughs) I know so my colleague did an overlay on a painted 
surface on one of her projects and it's it's a double-sided painted banner so with a massive crack through the middle so one side at least had to have an overlay and I remain astonished at her color match because obviously it was a painting there wasn't really one color to match it to it's just she managed to find this sort of misty gray color that didn't seem to change anything at all (laughs) that was astonishing I wish I was I this was before I started though so I just saw the results and thought how how did you get to this That's, that's amazing that is the magic not not the technical stuff that is the magic the choosing the color so she is the magician The Diversity of Dyes in History and Archaeology, edited by Joe Kirby, is a substantially academic 400-page collection of essays published by Archetype Publications in 2017. The essays cover a very broad range of topics and types of study, sorted into five different chapters. These are Approaches to the Study of Dyes, Dyes and Dying in Classical and Medieval Times, the 15th to the 17th century, the 18th to the 19th century and the rise of synthetic dyes, and properties, chemistry, and analysis of dyes. Naturally, my first thought is, hooray, a timeline! But the chapter layout isn't so much a timeline as a straightforward way of directing the reader's attention to topics of interest relevant to their work. I wouldn't call this a reference book, but a source book for the research of specific periods of dye use and for the research of previous dye studies. To start with reading this book, I had the impression that the topics jumped about jarringly within each chapter which left me a bit confused as to the purpose of the book and how we were expected to use it as a professional resource. Given a bit more time, however, I realised that that's the whole point of chapter one, approaches to the studies of dyes. We can learn so much from them that within a narrow range of the profession, jumping from the functions of colour in Polish folk attire to three deoxyanthocyanidins and their degradation products seems pretty reasonable in the context of all the other topics covered by the book. Saying that, chapter one is certainly more of an odd topics chapter than the following, as the following topics can be sorted into time periods, hence the title of the book, and the final one being simply science. The format of this is explained in the intro chapter, however, demonstrating the different ways that a dyed element of an object can be used to tell us about the object. And users of research collection publications are more likely to work from contents headings than start from the beginning of the book and then get confused. I do wonder if topics covered in this book could be missed by how broad they are, but I don't think that can be considered a fault of the book, rather just the division of the types of research in museums. I always say I love a timeline in these reviews, and though this travels in time, the case study essay nature of the book means that you get detailed snapshots of dye use rather than a complete picture. Because it's essay-based, though, it can be treated like a huge focused journal with the benefit of an abstract at the start of each chapter and a bibliography at the end of each chapter. Looking at one section as an example, the 18th and 19th centuries and the rise of synthetic dyes, it starts with the use of domestic dyeing lichens during the Age of Utility in Sweden, which details different discoveries and the individuals who made them, and includes details of processes and places the work in the historic social context of the time. The following chapter, Mr. Worth's Woolen Yarns, is particularly satisfying, using the techniques of XRF and Raman to identify the accuracy of samples and recipes, which, though the provenance is described with some mystery, could have significant relevance to many studies of Victorian wool dyeing in Europe. I've been pleased to see that colourant use has been broad as well, with printing inks in Sweden and England across 50 years, and later in the chapter, chemical principles of a doomed technology, azomethine colour photography. 
the use of old dyes in the development of colour photographs, and bright new colours, the history and analysis of fluorescein, eosine, erythrocene, rhodamine, and some of their derivatives, detailing the history and the use of these synthetic dyes in paints as well as textiles. In a way, I feel overwhelmed by the breadth of topics covered in this book. Over all material types, all periods of history, and much of the world... But in the process of research, this is likely to be used alongside other sources, like Wikipedia, if a more complete picture of a certain time, place, object or development was required. I've enjoyed looking through this book very much, and I can imagine it being of actual use to my work. I appreciate the science, obviously, but I also appreciate the collection and the summary of histories, so I don't feel blocked out of study and research by my inability to join in with it myself. The more I look through the content, though, the more I see that analysis is a strong theme throughout. Very positive, of course, and useful, but to me, this is useful as an indication of what I might find myself, rather than helping me with my own analysis. As well as any of the essays describing practical experiments with historic dyes, because I'm a sucker for this, I particularly liked the inclusion of a historic and cultural context of object types and dye uses. Faced with FTIR figures, I'd rather just read the conclusions, to be honest, but surround them with objects and religious histories, and the results make a surprisingly rich view into colour, technology, manufacture and innovation throughout history. If you're enjoying The C Word and would like to support our work, then please consider becoming one of our patrons. For as little as $1 per month, you can help us keep our episodes online and more of them coming. Patreon helps us meet our regular costs for the show, and also to plan ahead so we know roughly how much of a monthly budget we've got. That's super helpful when you're trying to do something special like buy a better microphone or save up to go to a special event. Your support also helps keep us free of advertisements. In return, our supporters get access to our archive of extended episodes, which you can only access on our Patreon page. Yeah, for that $1 a month, you get a little extra audio enjoyment. We've crunched the numbers, and it's about 10% extra content on a regular basis. That's not bad for less than a cup of coffee, eh? If supporting us sounds like something you'd like to do, then head over to patreon.com slash the C word and join our bunch of absolute champions. And a warm welcome to our latest patron, Rebecca. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for listening. We're The C Word and you've been listening to Alison Lister, Chloe Rumsey and me, Jenny Mathiasen. Join us in the autumn for another season. In the meantime, check out our website at theseaword.show, tweet us at theseawordpodcast or simply email us on theseawordpodcast at gmail.com. The intro and outro music is Spring by Didi Missick, used under Creative Commons Attribution License. Additional music and sound effects by Callum Robertson. This has been a Wooden Dice production. <laughs> <laughs>